Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, Cycling in Alignment listeners. Today's conversation is with Mike McKnight. Mike's an ultra runner, and he is the low-carb runner in the running world, the ultra running world. And I decided to reach out to him and speak to him a bit about his techniques for running while on a low-carbohydrate diet. And we get into a good conversation about fueling for athletes over different disciplines and some of Mike's tactics and techniques for coaching his athletes and trying to figure out what their optimal diet is. He's a very interesting dude, and he's also accomplished quite a few amazing feats in the world of ultra running. In 2017, he won the Triple Crown, as it's known, which is three 200-mile running races, the Bigfoot 200, the Tahoe 200, and the Moab 240. So that's a lot of running. The first year he ran it, he completed it with a total time of about 205 hours. So that gives you an idea of the scope of work this guy does when he's running. Uh, when he won it in 2017, he took 20 hours off his time, if I have my statistics correct. So that's pretty impressive. It makes me feel like my 36-hour fast when I fly to Europe isn't such a big deal. Also, during our podcast, we do talk a bit about some research and science that has been done in the world of carbohydrate usage. And I couldn't remember the researcher's name that I was trying to refer to. And then immediately when the podcast stopped, I figured it out. And that's Louise Burke. So I've linked one of her studies into the show notes. And the title of it is Low Carbohydrate High Fat Diet Impairs Exercise Economy and Negates Performance Benefit from Intensified Training in Elite Race Walkers. So probably something pretty applicable to what Mike's doing. He'll tell you about his own adventures and his own experiences one of the experiences that Mike shares is when he ran a 100 mile race consuming no calories at all. And this is also a pretty insane feat. Apparently he received a lot of criticism and backlash for this. And people felt that he was propagating or recommending that people try to run races without consuming calories. And I don't really think that was his MO based on what he, he mentions on the podcast. He also received a lot of criticism that he was probably harming his body. And so he set out to do it again in a race situation and quantify a lot of his metrics to figure out exactly what was happening to his body when he ran 100 miles consuming zero calories. And he wore a continuous blood glucose monitor. He also did some blood work and apparently still working on publishing some of the findings of all that, but he does disclaim some of the results in the podcast. So that's quite interesting. You might find that bit uh, worth a listen. So without further prevaricating about the bush, I will allow you to enjoy the discussion with Mike McKnight, the low carb runner. Thanks for listening. As always, pedal fast, pedal smooth, pedal consciously. All right. Well, Mike McKnight, welcome to the cycling and alignment podcast. Thanks for taking time today to come and talk to me and my audience. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for letting me come on and talk to your audience. You bet. So you said you're out of Logan, Utah. Yep. And what, yep. uh, what's the weather like there up there today? 
Today we are in the 50s and it's a little overcast and rainy. But okay. It's pretty typical for us. We're usually about in the 70s right now. And what altitude are you living at? Uh, my house is right at 5,000 feet. Oh, okay. So pretty similar to Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Just a populated though. Yeah. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit. What What's the population of Logan? Um, I mean, so like I'm in a place called Cash Valley. Yep. And like it actually reminds me a lot of Boulder, just how it looks and the size of it. I would say all of Cash Valley is the size of Boulder, but we're made up of like 20 different towns. Yeah. And so like, you know. Yeah. I'm sure the population of this whole area though is very similar to Boulder. Right. Yeah. Cause you almost have a front range thing going on there between Salt Lake and Logan. Like everything's growing together. Right. Yeah. 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 So in my backyard, there's a mountain range called the bear rivers mm-hmm. and it essentially connects to the Wasatch mountains. Yep. Um, and you know, those are pretty iconic. It's a part of the Wasatch 100 for the, for the runners out there. Yep. But yep. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of yeah. Cool. So that breaks us right into running. You're, you're an ultra runner, obviously, and that's your gig. So, um, we got connected through a third party, uh, person that I've never met actually, but, uh, you sound like a super interesting guy. So I appreciate you coming on to, to come on the pod. And, and I wanted to frame our discussion a little bit, sort of contrasting what's hot in the world of cycling right now, in the sense that, um, cycling at the moment is like, they're, they're two polar opposites perspectives, I would say, and I treat everything as a spectrum in terms of eating and fueling strategies, right? And on the one side, we have keto or low carb or uh, low carb, high fat diet. And then somewhere in there also, but not to be confounded, I would argue is a a carnivore perspective or carnivore diet. And then on the other side is, you know, pancakes and granola and all the carbs. And and cycling is definitely uh, competitive cycling, especially road racing or any racing discipline, um, barring the ultra events, you know, the FKT or maybe Ram or things like that is definitely heavily, heavily, um, engrossed I'll say, or enmeshed, um, entranced by the carb culture at the moment. And I'm not here, like, just to be clear, I'm not here to tell anybody how to run their diet. For me, the only rule in diet is what works for you. And I firmly believe that one man or woman's rocket fuel is another person's kryptonite. And so I, if anything, my message is always like, you have to figure out what works for you. That said, um, I'll, I'll put a link to this article in the show notes, but there's a great article on the super sapiens blog. Are you familiar with that device by any chance? I'm not. Okay. So the super sapiens device is something I've been working with a little bit. It's, it's a continuous blood glucose monitor, but it's, made to be specifically applicable to the athletic crowd. So it's a non-medical device. So it's not made for someone who has diabetes. It's made for someone who just wants to see how blood sugar impacts performance. And you can't really get them in the U S right now. They're working on FDA approval. Uh, so if you use one in the U S you kind of have to go through some hoops and be part of a study and do some other stuff and know the right people. And I'm fortunate enough to have done all those things and know the right people. So um, in any case, there's a guy who set uh, the Everesting world record recently. His name's Ronan McLaughlin, and he's also a journalist for Cycling Tips. And what's interesting is, so this event, the Everesting, in case, I'm sure everyone on this pod knows, but just in case, it's how fast you can climb the total altitude of Everest, right? On right. a bike. And I don't know, is that like a thing in running? Do people care about that? It's probably... Yeah. It's, it is. Okay, cool. 
running to. So maybe we can we can compare stats on that. But the current record, so in March 23rd of 2021, Ronan broke the Everesting World record on a bike, and he had this super light, ridiculous bike and all these goofy components and stuff, and he he nerded out to the nth degree, and it took him six hours, 40 minutes, and 54 seconds. Wow. So for me, which was 20 minutes faster than the previous record, um, and so that's 29,000 feet of vertical gain or about 8,800 meters, right? And what's interesting about that for me is that I think I would love to hear your opinion on this, but for me, six hours is sort of like the apex point of like the longest super intense effort you can do that would require some carbohydrates, but it also is, it's, it's short enough to where it could supply, could require a lot of carbohydrates and could rely heavily on glycolytic metabolism, but it's also long enough to where you could probably find the right athlete who could tackle it from the other side and go super fast if they were low carb, but past north of six hours, you know, the types of events you're doing, I mean, you're doing events that are 60 hour duration, right? Like a 200 mile run. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love for you to unpack some of your nutritional strategies behind all that and, and how you got down that road. And maybe we can kind of talk about that apex point if you think that's relevant. Um, but then I just let the cat out of the bag first. Before I did all that, I wanted to ask you, what'd you have for breakfast today, man? <laughs> <laughs> for breakfast, man, I typically do like a little fasting in the morning. Um, okay. So I, I, I guess it's like a food fast. So like this morning I had like a matcha latte uh, okay. with a of collagen peptides added to it. So, you know, a couple hundred calories, but <clears throat> my biggest meal usually starts about lunchtime, which is typically just before my run or just after my run. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it just kind of all depends on the strategy that I have for that day. Yep. 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 Okay. But the matcha but, smoothie would be typical for you in the mornings. Is that a pretty common starting point? Yeah. 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 I usually like I'll, I'll do a little bit of like light strength training in the morning for 30 to 45 minutes. Okay. Um, and I guess strength training is a word I should use lightly. It's more like mobility type work. Mm -hmm. uh, like I'll do some pull-ups and push-ups and stuff, but it's like a lot of air squats, banded lateral walks, wall sits, just a lot of stuff to engage my glutes. Yep. You know, engage those muscle groups that a lot of runners don't engage. Yep. Um, and then after I do that, I'll top that off with like a matcha latte and a little bit of collagen to get some protein in there too. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, but no, you, and then I apologize in advance if you can hear my daughter in the background. That's all right. No worries. <laughs> you yeah. Pick up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I need to make like a soundproof room in my house. For this <laughs> yeah. No worries. But yeah, you bring up an interesting point about like that six hour range and whether it's like kind of a, the max threshold for like a low carb athlete versus a high carb athlete and, and how they utilize their nutrition for performance. Um, I think it's very, from what I can tell, I think it's different between cycling and running because like there's su such different sports. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I, have you ever heard of Zach Bitter before? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe it rings a bell. Okay. So like. Typically when I talk to people, I always say that like a low carb approach makes the most, most sense for the longer distances Yep. just because it's, it's longer and it's lower intensity. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have like the half marathoners, the marathoners, and even like when you get into the ultra world, like the 50 Kers or 50 milers, like those are, and I know it sounds funny to say a 50 mile is short, but right. those distances are short enough because like some people can run 50 miles in like six hours. Mm -hmm. uh, so that kind of does go close to that range that you're talking about for cyclists, but mm -hmm. you, you see those shorter distances and like one could argue that those are like a low carb approach necessarily wouldn't make the most sense for those kind of distances because you're going at such a higher intensity and you can utilize your glycogen a lot more. Right. 
but Zach Bitter, he's kind of the anomaly that I would say. Um, he's a low carb athlete as well. He's not a keto athlete. Um, he's a low carb athlete. And I wouldn't even say that I'm a keto athlete. I'm also a low carb athlete. Okay. But Zach Bitter, he's, he's set multiple world records, like for the hundred mile distance and the 12 and 24 hour distance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just last year or the year before he ran a hundred miles in, it was like 11 and a half hours. And that correlated to, it was like a six forty five minute pace. Wow. Um, he, he did that for a hundred straight miles. So, wow. you know, he, he still had some carbs, but he's still quite a bit lower with his carbon take than the average high carb athlete. So, uh-huh. you know, seeing his, his example and seeing the things that he's able to accomplish, like, it just makes me wonder like <laughs> the, the, the intensity, cause obviously that's a high intensity, even like, you know, for a hundred miles of six forty seven pace, that's nuts. Mm. And, and he's able to make it work with his low carb approach too. So, right. Right. But we got to wonder if he's just so efficient that really, I mean, 647 pace, we're tempted to conclude that he's using some carbs, but that may just not be the case. It might be that he's that fast and that he's predominantly fat burning. I mean, I would argue you said it was 11 hour duration. Is that what you said? 11 and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no way that wasn't dominated by fat metabolism, right? Right. So, yeah. Your fat storage at that kind of distance for sure. Right. But to go at that pace, like it's just, it's just incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, that's insane. I mean, yeah, I do a good bit of running, but I mean, I'm always on trail and I'm always in Vibrams. So I'm kind of handicapping myself on purpose because that's just what I enjoy. But I mean, 647 pace is like, that's clipping, man. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like comparing that to what I do for my 200 mile races, like, yeah, like you said, I just did a 250 mile race in 65 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, average pace, I think ends up being like 14 or 15 minute miles average over the span of like three days. That includes your sleep time. Yeah. Um, that's just total running time, including stops and hydration yeah. and pee breaks and everything else. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's such a lower intensity. And like my heart rate is just kind of in that prime fat burning range for the majority of that run anyway. So like mm-hmm. those kind of distances, I, I really feel make sense to adopt a low carb approach because you're you're already going to tap into your fat storage at that kind of pace. So you might as well be even more efficient at it. And what kind of average heart rate are you seeing for that 250 mile race? Uh, mid one thirties is what I averaged out at. Okay. And how was the altitude? Uh, so it started in Prescott, Prescott. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. I don't either. Prescott. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This starts in Prescott, Arizona, and then it just kind of like zigzags through the mountains and ends up in Flagstaff. Yeah. So it's a net gain and, you know, you end up at like 8,000 feet or whatever Flagstaff sits at. Yep. So yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So would you mind if we just rewind for one second, will you just unpack the difference between a low carb and a keto diet? So the audience can understand what we mean by those terms. Cause I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Even keto to carnivore, I hear people say, Oh, you're on the, you're going keto. You're having steak all the time. I'm like, mm this is not the way this works, right? <laughs> if yeah. you can lay those out for us. Yeah. So like a keto athlete, like, so I, I'm a, I'm a coach. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to what you were saying earlier. Like I believe that everybody's bodies are different. And so there's actually people that I've coached where I've like pushed them away from a low carb approach mm-hmm. just as looking at their goals, looking at their history and just like establishing a few different other factors that we just decided that's not the approach that they need to adapt at the time. Right. Adopt at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, yeah. So like, I just want to put that disclaimer out there that I also agree with you, but you know, a keto athlete, I would say like a strict keto diet is 30 grams of carbs a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're mostly getting that from non-starchy vegetables, occasional berries, but it's mostly from non-starchy vegetables. Um, a low carb athlete and the term that we use, it's called OFM for optimized fat metabolism. Mm-hmm. Basically what we're doing is we're trying to be efficient at fat burning and glucose. And the way that we do that is we just implement a strategic keto diet throughout our training. Mm -hmm. Um, overall, like the whole umbrella of our diet is low carb because like the most carbs I'm going to get in a day is about 150 grams, which is high for a keto diet, but it's very low for a standard American diet. Yep. And so basically the more I'm training, the more I'm running, the more speed work I'm doing, the more carbs I'm going to have. And then more I'm like recovering and resting, the closer I'm going to get to a strategic keto diet. And then also just in preparation for a race, I'll go strict keto for a few days just to kind of like reset and tap into my fat storage a little bit more and be more efficient as I go into my race day. Hmm. And then I'll top off my glycogen a day or two before a race, go back to 150 grams. And I do that because I want to go into the race being efficient at both fuel sources. Uh I can take in a gel, get a quick boost. And then because I am efficient at fat burning, I can just go right back into fat burning and kind of have that consistent baseline. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. So like I'd say a keto athlete, their goal is to just like a lot of people who are strict keto are doing it for weight loss purposes. Um, or they just like have a lot of sensitivities to inflammation Mm -hmm. and a low carb approach is really good at eliminating that inflammation. But I'd say the majority of the people that eat the way that I do, um, who are doing the low carb approach are doing it just because they want to be efficient at both fuel sources. Right. Uh, right. Okay. Interesting. So it sounds like the overall arching goal, overarching goal for your eating strategy within over a certain number of period of months or whatever is to give you metabolic flexibility so that you can go to the race and consume uh, different fuels at different moments based on your strategy, right? If you're having a weak moment, you might need a gel right? Or maybe you've got a long climb ahead of you and you go into it feeling kind of low, low energy at the bottom of the climb. I'm just hypothesizing a little bit, but you might take a gel then. Also, I would imagine ultras, like there's probably a lot of pivoting that has to be done because you show up and the feed zone that, that you have only has a certain type of, you know, they've got bananas and it's like bananas are nothing. It's like, Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's yeah. another equation, part of the equation for us to all factor into, into our uh, eating choices. Yeah. And another equation too, is like this race that I did two weeks ago, it was 250 miles. Um, I made a dumb mistake the day before the day of the race, like two hours before the race, I tried to load up on electrolytes just because it was a hotter race and I wanted to get ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. But I just overloaded so much that I spent the whole first day trying to like dump that out. Like my stuff felt weird. I was dry heaving a lot. And so that whole first day I couldn't really eat. And, um, that's kind of one of the many benefits I've seen from a low carb approach is like, even though I wasn't able to eat a lot that day, I still had a fairly consistent pace and I wasn't Mm. like, I didn't drop off too much because historically if I was having stomach issues, I would like slow down to like one to two miles per hour just because I had no energy because I wasn't able to eat. Mm -hmm. Well, like, if I, if I run into that situation and I can't eat, it doesn't matter because I'm efficient at fat burning. So I still have that baseline that I can tap into. Right. Right. Huh, but yeah, and like before every climb, I'll pop a gel, um, at this race in particular, just because I went without food and calories for so long, 
the thing that kind of revived me is I craved a Slurpee um, on day two. Uh-huh. And so I had my wife go to a gas station. She came back with a Slurpee. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't remember the last time I've had a Slurpee. That's not in my daily diet at all. Right, right. Craving it. <laughs> and as soon as I like guzzled through that thing, I just like had a huge boost. I was able to take off and I kind of got into a groove again. Nice. Because of that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Weird uh, ultra running cravings, <laughs> I guess. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah. So like yeah. I had that boost from that Slurpee and then I was able just to go back to my baseline of fat burning and mm-hmm. you know, kind of keep being consistent for the rest of the race. Okay. Okay. So what I find, um, I've also heard the same definition of keto diet being 30 grams of carbs or less per day. And just so people know, like in case they don't, that's like, if you ate a single bagel, you'd be over for the day in most <laughs> like a normal sized bagel. Like it's not, and that means a, not a single carbohydrate gram of carb in the rest of your, your meal. So if you had a small bagel for breakfast, that was exactly 30 grams, three quarters of a bagel or something like that, then you like literally you couldn't even eat anything with a single gram of carbs, which is most foods have at least a couple grams. Like you get a little bit of carbohydrate in most foods. So that's pretty tricky to do. So you're very strict. But what I find interesting about that is that it's an external definition of keto. And I'm not saying anyone's definition is wrong, but really, I mean, if we're measuring with keto breath strips or whatever, then isn't the definition when you're in ketosis, right? That would be the next level is to start to quantify that. Right. Yeah. This is just my theory. It's Mm -hmm. not science-based or anything like that. I want to make sure everybody knows that, but my theory is that we're, we've, we've adopted a high carb diet and like our bodies burn glucose easier than fat. Mm -hmm. And because we have such a high carb diet, the reason we're not efficient at fat burning is just because we never tap into that. Mm. Uh, And I kind of relate it to a candle. Um, You know, you have a candle, you have a wick. As soon as you light that wick, it doesn't take long before the wax starts to melt. Mm -hmm. Like my theory is that once you go straight keto for a few wicks, you're essentially lighting that wick and you're just, you're kind of reminding your body like, Hey, that fat storage is there. You're familiarizing your body with that fat storage. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't feel like you have to be that strict with it. Once you light that wick, like, I feel like, like I could, like, I feel like if I was to go out tonight and have like 500 grams of carbs that tomorrow I'd still be just as efficient at fat burning as I was today, mm-hmm. even with that high carb intake, just because I got my body familiar with it. I lit the wick and it doesn't take much to like get yourself back into ketosis. So, yeah. Yeah. Just kind of going along with what you're saying. Yeah. 30 grams is the definition, but I feel like, I feel like we can give ourselves a lot more flexibility and still utilize those ketones for people who like want that. If that right. Makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it makes me think of, uh, in coaching, I'm, I'm frequently trying to get my riders to express or explore limits of different parameters of, well, different things so that they can be more robust at them. And that can go for everything from learning to pedal a bike with an extremely large gear, high torque, low cadence situation. So they can handle the constant muscle tension and the joints can handle that tension without problems. But likewise, also being able to spin at a very high cadence. Um, same thing with temperature, like you're using hot, you know, far infrared sauna and cold showers or ice baths in the summer, possibly, right? It's, we push our envelope in these respects and that makes us more durable as athletes and more um, capable of encountering different situations in real world conditions. Cause it's really easy for us to think that we're going to get to a race and we're going to have exactly 60 grams of carbs every 28 minutes or whatever. 
um, you know, spoon fed to us by our magic gel fairies. But the <laughs> fact is that doesn't always happen. Like people miss feed zones, even at the world tour level, like people miss feed zones, you know, people drop bottles, bottles come out of cages, uh, food flies out of your pockets. Like you get hailed on, you know, stuff happens. Right. So, um, and, and not even just preparing for the inevitable wiggles that we'll have in competition, but also just thinking about being a more robust human. Like one of the things I like to remind my clients is that sport is really training for life. And I think yeah. sometimes we get that backwards. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And, and so it, we want to be, you know, the, the order of operations is one, be a human two be a sports person. Right. And right. if you don't look after number one, first, the sports won't matter because if you can't walk or your feet don't work or you can't function or digest calories, then you're not going to be very fast either running or on the bike. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it all just goes back to flexibility. Like what you were saying earlier, like, mm. <clears throat> like when I, when I build plans for the people that I coach, like I never make one week the same as the other week. Mm. Like I, I believe in keeping the body guessing and keeping the body like, once you get into a routine, like routines are good in terms of like getting out every single day and working out or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, I feel like if you get stuck doing the same workout every single day, then your body just adapts to that. And as soon as like some variation gets thrown in, like at a race or whatever, like you have an issue at a race that you don't train for, then you're going to run into issues. And so it's just all about being flexible and making sure your body's just used to surprises and, and not getting stuck in that kind of routine. Yeah. 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 Good. I agree. I agree. I like to have durable athletes for sure. And all those aspects. So, okay. Another question for you. Are you like, I've listened to a lot of Peter Tia and, um, you know, Dom D'Agostino and guys like that. And those, these are guys that are, were in the last few years, like really paving the way for a lot of keto knowledge and Peter's using breath strips and talking about the numbers and all that stuff and educating a lot of people on if they want to investigate that ketogenic world, how to go about it. Uh, but one thing that I've heard kind of a recurring theme is that not everyone responds the same to a ketogenic diet. And I would say my current understanding, which may certainly not be accurate, is that I would agree that the, probably the majority of the people, if they're having a lot of inflammation and they're chronically inflamed, when we take them to a more of a ketogenic end of the spectrum, they tend to lose some of those inflammation challenges that may or may not be enable them to address the core issue. They might just be inflamed because of body choices or chronic cortisol or whatever. But, but I also hear that there's a small number of people who actually their inflammatory markers can skyrocket on a keto diet. And this gets, for me, this goes to, it makes me wonder about genealogy or about ancestry and whether maybe it has to do with the, the environment in which the people's ancestral lineage was, uh, acclimated to. Right. So, and it gets into a little bit of like Weston A. Price or um, metabolic typing diet conversation about, you know, people who are dominantly genetically from a warmer climate, they're going to struggle with probably higher fat foods, denser foods, because they're from a warmer climate. And also they didn't have access to that. Whereas people from a colder climate had access to animals that have higher fat content by definition and more root vegetables by, comp by definition. So they eat heavier foods and they do better with that. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that whole ball of wax. It was a lot of stuff. Sorry. <laughs> no, okay. no. Yeah. So I think like, I think that, um, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. <about> that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I think two things are happening here. Like I think genealogy plays a part into that for sure. Mm -hmm. um, like 
the there's a general rule that a lot of people in every sports world follows and that's um if it's working don't change it right and so i feel like the majority of the people who come to this approach were having issues with like the standard american diet the standard high carb approach yeah so i feel like that just kind of works itself out because like the high carb approach isn't working for them so they start looking for something new and then they may or may not find this approach and find that it works for them yep you might have those outliers who just want to try a keto diet for some reason, even though their old diet was working. And maybe those are the ones that aren't um, seeing success with it just because, mm-hmm. you know, genealogically or their Gene- genealogy. Yeah. Genealogically. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever yeah. That word is. yeah. 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 So they, they just didn't really have a reason to come to it. And because of that, they are having issues with it. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder too, how many of those people um, that do have issues with a low carb approach, one, they're either doing like a dirty keto approach. Um, mm. and What's a dirty if... keto approach? So yeah, the dirty keto approach is like a lot of the ketogenic, um, like the keto friendly snacks that you see ah. at the source. Yeah. And also too, like, um, like I remember when I first started keto, one of the things that I did wrong was I put ranch on a lot of my food. Uh-huh. Um, just because you look at the nutrition label and it's like, oh, two grams of carbs. So yeah, I'm just going to load. Right everything with ranch but <laughs> the thing is is like ranch is loaded with a ton of crap yes um, most, most of it yeah, yeah vegetable oils in particular yes and vegetable oils are like highly I mean, inflammatory for most people yeah 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 so i feel like a lot of people are just doing the dirty keto and mm. they're seeing the inflammation from that mm. um like you mentioned bagels earlier um like i feel like somebody that's doing a true keto diet would never touch a bagel because mm. there are studies that show grains are inflammatory too mm-hmm um, so I, I feel like a lot of those people are just choosing the wrong carbs. Um, the other thing too, is like a lot of people think a keto diet is like, a the bacon diet I've yeah. heard a few times, Totally. But, but I maybe have bacon. I actually can't remember the last time I've had bacon, but it's like bacon is a processed meat and processed meats are also high in inflammation too. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. it's just people doing it wrong that are seeing the, the markers, Mm. not be in their favor. That's a great point. You know, it's like, um, same thing with people who decide they're going to go gluten-free and then they're eating, you know, they go to the ice cream aisle and they see sorbet and it says gluten-free on it. It's like, Oh, I can eat this. It's good for me. This is not the way this works. Right. (laughs) Or gluten-free cookies that have 50 ingredients, like 12 different types of flowers and all these gums and all this stuff. That's, they're just trying so hard to be a chocolate chip cookie. Like, you'd probably be better off just eating the freaking cookie most of the time, you know, and eating it in very small quantities perhaps. And maybe you need none for a while, but yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think you're right. I think there's probably a lot to that where people are, you know, doing it wrong or eating dirty keto or just making poor choices. And they're not quite understanding really what the essence of, of the diet is and, um, and adhering to that. But the other thing I'll say is that and maybe you've had a similar experience, but I have this model in my head and I don't know that it's right or true or accurate, but for me, I have this feeling that a lot of people go through, they come to a health crisis, right? And there's the saying like you, sometimes you just need a big enough crisis to precipitate change. So people, you know, they have uh, chronic injuries or chronic illness or soreness or uh, joint pain or inflammation or other factors, maybe it's uh, bowel inflammation, right? Or um, digestive problems and they, they can't figure it out and they go through the Western medical doctor model and maybe they try the steroids or the antibiotics or whatever, and that doesn't work. Okay. So they dig deeper and they dig deeper and they 
eventually realized the standard American diet's got some pretty big problems with it. So they try vegetarian. And vegetarian diet miraculously cures all these problems, right? They lose weight and their skin improves or their knee stops hurting or their arthritis goes away or whatever you name it. And the, the experience that I've had is that a lot of times people will just assume that that was a one-step journey and that they went from standard American diet to the final solution and they found it. Hallelujah. That's it. We're done. And that may be the case, but I think unfortunately what people maybe don't always see is that they went just the improvement, the step up from the standard American diet to vegetarianism allowed their system to clean out a bunch of the junk that they had accumulated in their bodies for, you know, with 30 or 20 or 30 or 40 years of eating standard American diet. So that cleansing felt very powerful, but the vegetarian diet may not have enough substance to nourish them long-term to continue to do what they do. And yeah. so they may be multiple steps to the healing of their diet or finding the choice of their ultimate optimal diet, whatever that is. But instead they make what, um, Oh, I've got the book here on my, I'm going to forget the guy's name. There's an author who talks about the four errors of man. And one of them is the error of knowledge. And it's like, basically it's like the big, it's like the front half of Dunning Kruger, Kruger curve. And you start to study a subject and you get there and you're like, look at all the stuff I know. And you start telling every people all the things, you know, right. Yeah. And then you study more and more and more. And two years later, you look back and you go, okay, first of all, I didn't know anything. And now I know that I know nothing because I can see all the things that I don't know. Yeah. And then you go the opposite. You're like, you won't talk about anything because you're, I've, I've been getting clubbed in the head with the Dunning-Kruger curve for like 10 years. Last, the last five months was like another couple big ones. It's a great experience, but, um, long winded way to say that I find that people, I think maybe sometimes don't see the diet as what's really probably a multi rung ladder in many cases. And they're just on the first rung and that's great. Every rung you, you climb is like progress. That's something to be celebrated. But I would encourage people to think about that, you know, maybe the vegetarian diet or whatever diet, I'm not trying to bash vegetarianism. I'm just using it as an example in this case. It may not be the final rung for you. Um, do you have thoughts on that whole model that I just laid out? No, I agree with you. Like, I, I think it goes back to the whole thing about being flexible mm. and keeping the body guessing. Mm. Like, I, I personally, even though I am low carb, like, most of the time, like I still experiment a little to see what's going to work best for me. Um, I have, I have a, I have a buddy named Jeff Browning. He is okay. a ultra runner and he's actually the one that got me into this approach. And he, the, what's the word he used? He said that he, he's a flexitarian. Yeah. 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 Love that term. Yeah. Is that, is that an actual term? I, I think I, so. I mean, I've heard other people say it, so. Okay. He's <laughs> yeah. the first person that I've heard say that before, yep. but yep. basically, you know, he's just saying that he's, he's flexible. He'll change it however he needs to change it. Yep. If like a year from now, all of a sudden the low carb approach doesn't work for him, he's going to be okay going to something else. Mm -hmm. um, he just wants to do what makes him the healthiest and makes him like, in this case, the fastest for, for running. Yep. And so, you know, I'm kind of doing the same thing where I'm experimenting to see what works best and what doesn't work best. Um, and I just, I think, I really think once we get our bodies into a routine, it just gets complacent and kind of like lets its guard down. It might get like metabolically lazy. I don't know if that's a real term or not, mm. but I think it's just really important to keep your body guessing and not getting stuck into some routine. Mm. Um, to give you an example, like um, I, I, 
I, have you heard of levels, the continuous glucose monitor? Yeah. 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 So, mm-hmm. um, I, I wore a levels monitor for a month, a few months ago. Okay. I guess I had two monitors because it expires every 14 days. Right. Um, but when I was doing that, I was like doing some experimenting to see what affected me and what didn't affect me. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where I started to develop my theory that like, it doesn't take much to get us used to burning fat and we can have some off days, but like, you know, once you get your body used to burning fat, it can be efficient at it no matter what you eat. Mm. So there is a day where like, um, people might call me a hypocrite when they hear me talking about this. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but there's a day when I had like a, a cookie, like a big old fat crumble cookie. Um, I had cheap Chinese food. I had some tortilla chips and queso. I had candy. Like it was a, a junk filled day. Yep. And it was a bunch of food that I hadn't had in years. And um, my average, my average level for the CGM was about 70, 72. Yep. And when I ate that food, like the highest spike I had during the day was 120. And like, I'm pretty sure sh- from what I remember, 70 to 120 is a normal range mm-hmm. people want to shoot for. So mm-hmm. even though I had a spike, I was still technically in the normal range, even after eating all that kind of junk. Right. Right. And then the next day I had a huge like fruit smoothie. Um, there's probably like 70 to 80 grams of carbs in it. Um, and I didn't have any spike before I ate that I was at 70 and after I ate it. And for a few hours after I ate it, I remained at 70. So it did absolutely nothing to me. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that once you get your body, like, I, I think all these diets in reality is a good way to reset. Like you were saying, like the people that lose a bunch of weight on a keto diet, even like, yeah, of course they're going to lose weight because they're going from like a crappy standard American diet where they're mm-hmm. eating a ton of sugar and a ton of processed junk to just eating meat and vegetables. So of course they're going to lose weight and see a bunch of improvement. Right. So I think all these things are a good reset, but like long-term it's important to just start throwing in random stuff and keep the body guessing, keep the mm-hmm. body metabolically flexible um, and make sure that your, your body's like not getting complacent with whatever you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I I think ultimately the end goal is to have a sort of you know, long-term durability for the athlete like like we mentioned and that means to a certain degree you could survive on just about anything. Um yeah. and not have too many kryptonite foods and unfortunately we live in a world where so many people have so many limits and diets are about limits. It's like can't eat this, can't eat gluten, can't eat sugar, can't eat chocolate, can't eat this, can't eat that. Can only have one coffee every 48 hours or whatever and and that's it feels like living in jail, right? Some of that is sort of a byproduct of us living in such a commercial society with so many weird foods like Doritos and, you know, stuff that really you would never find in a forest in a million years, obviously. So there's some of that, but I think metabolic durability is definitely a concept that I strive for in myself. And, and I try to, um, encourage my athletes, shoo them into that direction for sure. I think that's really important. Yeah. A durable biome, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you mentioned you earlier, you mentioned like chronic cortisol levels, like cortisol high. Mm -hmm. I think too, like, like with what you're saying with like only one cup of coffee, no gluten, no sugar. Like, I feel like all these rules that are being made out there, like you're allowed, like it's making people stressed out. It's like, right. I want this, but I shouldn't have it. Can't have it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they just like mentally like stress out about it and it raises their cortisol levels mm-hmm. and right. they can get weight from that. And it's just chronic yep. inflammation from that. So, you know, while I do believe it's important to eat healthy, like it's not good to stress about it and just mm. continue be stressed about it because it's going to have a backward effect on what you're trying to do. And, you know, maybe to think about it one level deeper, you know, I have this hypothetical client in my mind. It's like their life choice has been to really medicate their emptiness or their lack of whatever they're feeling a lack of in their life with food, right? Because we all have powerful emotional connections to food. It's like we can probably all imagine walking into the kitchen when we were young and mom made our favorite dinner and the smell of that and how loved we felt because it was like mom's in the kitchen. She's cooking for me. I'm safe. Like that's a very powerful connection. Hopefully everyone has that memory, right? Um, and, And so food is emotional for us, but when we, so I'm imagining a client who medicates their pain with food or fills a void in their life with food. And what's the easiest way to fill a void is to do it with foods that are high impact. So high fat, high flavor profiles, a lot of additives, a lot of big flavors, a lot of hot sauces, a lot of sugar and salt, ketchup, you know, condiments, a lot of condiments, a lot of ranch. <laughs> Those are good ways to like, to medicate your food and, and medicate yourself with that food. And really fundamentally, it's a choice of, instead of looking at the emptiness in my life, I'm going to fill it. I'm going to plug the hole. And so now I'm on, I'm, but now I've, I've run into health problems because of this choice, because I've been doing it for eight years or 10 years or 20 years. And I went, I went through this phase, you know, I had a decade of my life where I ate absolute crap, like Tostino's frozen pizzas and ice cream all the time. I'm still unwinding that still healing on that journey. But then, then now you, the client has health challenges from these choices they've made and they've got to deal with these choices. Okay, great. Let's do that. How do we do that? We're going to, we're going to know this and know that and know that and chop, 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 chop. And just like you said, then the client feels like they're in jail, but they also can't, they don't have a method for plugging the hole. That void, that emotional void they were filling is still there. We have done nothing to address that. All we did was take away one of their crutches, one of their, their vices. And so now they feel empty and they're telling themselves no all the time. I mean, you want to raise someone's cortisol, just point your finger at them and yell no in their face multiple times. Like you'll get a response, right? So it's a no wonder that people, this type of approach really isn't sustainable. And we hear about people who do it for six months or nine months because they've got strong willpower, but eventually that emotional emptiness is going to come back and they're going to find a way to plug it. And unless they also are doing therapy and figuring it out, whatever type of therapy works, hopefully they find one that does, or they're digging and looking into this, or maybe they're meditating or whatever they're doing to figure out why they're plugging this whole, this void with food. If they don't address that, you're just going to have a little, a little circle adventure, right? Yeah. 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 And I don't know if it's the same in the cycling world as it is in the running world, but I've learned that um, like eating disorders is pretty common. And so that leads into a sensitive subject too, because obviously, you know, somebody that used to be like throwing up their food or starving themselves, like, yep. They may be eating like a bunch of pop tarts and stuff right now that, you know, according to like me and you, we would probably not eat that much, but like, you know, they're, they're eating finally and they're trying to get over that body image issue that they Mm -hmm. have. So, so just the whole nutrition thing is just super sensitive because you want to make sure that you're not like hurting people that are trying to like get back into a healthy eating style and just eating in general. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of emotion that's involved with people's food choices for sure. It's a great, it's a great point. And 
you know, I have this conversation with my athletes all the time, especially in the road cycling world. There is definitely, uh, there's some eating disorders going on for sure. Some disordered eating in the women's Peloton, but also in the men's, um, there's a colloquial term we throw around, which is probably offensive manorexia. I mean, <laughs> like yeah. there are guys who just do not eat enough. They're underfueled all the time. And yeah. we have lots of conversations. This is where using a continuous blood glucose monitor can help us make progress as coaches because right. I have athletes that I've been telling to eat more for years and they're like, yeah, I, I am. But then it wasn't until we got the, the blood glucose monitor on them. And then we also started tracking their calories that we were able to show them how in the hole they were. And it, then it was really eye opening, And they were like, oh, I see what you mean. I'm 700 calories short on five days a week for like yeah. months on end. You know, I was like, no wonder, yeah. you know? So when you can show them the numbers, sometimes the numbers are illustrative and, and important in that learning process. But yeah, I agree. Sure. It, it can be tricky territory, you know, to, to address that. You don't want to, you don't want to hammer somebody for eating pop tarts and then have them regress to not eating again. Right. That's the not, that's not growth. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's a tricky one. Um, you know, one of the ways I approach that conversation is to remind the athlete that total weight is really a useless metric because mm -hmm. of course you train really hard for two weeks. You can gain two kilos of muscle and lose one kilo of fat and you're a way faster athlete, but yep. on the scale you're heavier. So heavy does not always equal bad. We have to be far more discerning than that. It's about lean mass versus muscle versus adipose tissue. You have to be, and also water content. Yeah, for sure. Right? And water content for an aerobic, for an endurance athlete, like glycogen storage and water content. Remember, is it for every three grams of glycogen, one gram of water has to be stored. Did I have that wrong? I forgot. I just had this statistic memorized the other day and now I dememorized it, but there's a relationship there. Maybe it's two to one, but in order to store glycogen, you have to have water like period. Yeah. So when you're carb loaded, you're going to be a lot heavier. Your muscles are swollen with glycogen and water. Your liver is swollen with glycogen and water. Like the, the swing can be two kilos in an athlete easy between finishing a race and that night versus well-fueled, like you're stocking up for a race, right? For two days and you're eating yeah. your few hundred grams of carbs. So, yeah. And that's why a lot of people who go to the keto diet, like lose a bunch of weight right at first because yeah. they dump that glycogen dump and yep. the water with it too. Yep. Yep. I've had experiences like that where I've been really have my body's been really harvesting glycogen because of my training load. And then I've had to take a couple of days off because I've smashed or life or whatever. And about 24, 18, 24, maybe 36 hours after I'm like, I'm going to the bathroom and I'm peeing like for minutes at a time. Yeah. And it's my water, just, just my water, just leaving the body. Like my body's like, oh, we don't need this anymore. This extra kilo and a half of water. Like we're just going to let it go into the universe. It's a weird experience. Well, and then that makes me think of something too, that like, you know, people who are like chronically keto all the time, especially athletes, um, they can, they run into the risk of like having like a reverse effect yes. where it's there. They start having GI stress when they do intake carbs because right. their body's not used to it anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And also with that too, like there's like, I would say I've fallen into that category where I've been too chronically low with my carbs mm. and I, like one of the negative things that I saw from that is like when I, when I would do races and intake carbs. Um, and it's actually pretty funny because people would like say like, Holy cow, did you lose 10 to 20 pounds from that race? And I was like, no, actually like I gained weight and like taking my shirt off, looking at myself in the mirror. Like I looked very fat because uh -huh. of like 
all the water that my body was retaining from all the carbs that I was eating that I wasn't used to. Right. And like I got super bloated, super like jiggly and stuff just mm. because of all the water that my body was holding on to. So, mm. you know, like it just goes back to the metabolic flexibility. Like mm. you don't want to go from like being dependent on carbs to being a hundred percent dependent on fat and not being able to utilize carbs. Like, yep. Yep. Like if you can be a dual fuel burner, then why wouldn't you like take advantage of that and be good? Yes. At both? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, in addition to GI challenges for athletes who are super keto, and then they start to try to take carbs, like on race day only, which I've heard about quite a bit. The other challenge I've heard is that, and I think there's quite a bit of science to support this. Um, forgetting the researcher's name at the moment, but it's a woman and she talks about this. She's written a couple articles about it and it's pretty conclusive from her lens, which is that I'll see if I can find the article and drop it into the show notes. Sorry, everybody. But, um, she talks about the fact that there's a good bit of evidence that also the enzymes in the muscles that would use the carbs for glycolytic metabolism kind of shut down when you are keto for, you know, a few weeks, I, like the old rule still applies as a natural law. Like your body is hyper efficient. So if you don't use it, you'll lose it. So if you're just always, you know, avocados, avocados, olive oil, avocados, keto, 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 and just trickling in, you know, 30 grams of carbs a day, then you go to use that glycolytic engine and really lay some power down and smack it. The, the muscles are not going to know what to do with that fuel because those enzyme pathways have not been utilized. I mean, this is why in cycling, especially before like a road race or a criterium, an event that's very explosive and very dynamic and has a lot of speed to it. The day before you go out and you do these light tune-up efforts, you activate all those energy systems, you know, you do a couple sprints, you do like one couple minutes at VO2, you know, max or thereabouts, like a little bit of tempo, you do a little bit of big gear work, a little bit of spinning, and then that's it. You just put it away. And then you get up the next day and it's like, you've got just the 2% of fatigue in your legs from that work, but everything's lit up and turned on. All the light switches are going, the engine's warm. And then you yeah. can go, you do a light spin and then you go to the race and boom. Right. And I would guess that you guys, I don't know, is that a thing you guys do like before maybe half marathons or something that's a little speedier? I mean, it just goes back to the lighting the wick kind of thing that okay. I was saying earlier with the camp. Like, yeah. I wouldn't say that we do it to that extent, but like back before I really like dug into all of this, like, like if I had a race on a Saturday, then I would take Friday off kind of a yeah. thing to give myself a rest day. Yeah. But now like learning a little bit more, studying more, seeing how my body works. Like I've, I've transitioned my rest day to being two days before the race. Mm -hmm. And then before I'll go out and do like a 30 minute shakeout type run just to like mm -hmm. light things up, keep things loose, keep things moving. So yeah, similar, but a little bit different. Yeah. Like, Evolving. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it'd be cool if you do put um, that information in the show notes about that. Um, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd be curious to read that. Cool. I will definitely research that. Uh, I cannot think of the woman's name, um, but I'll start. One of the researches that I've studied quite a bit is um, the Real Science Podcast, Real S Science of Sport Podcast with uh, Ross Tucker, Dr. Ross Tucker. Okay. And I'll find her name on there because I know he's done some interviews with her. So in any cool. case, I'll dig into that. But um, so are you using or are any of your athletes using or have you experimented with exogenous ketones at all? Um, I used to, and okay. I'm, I'm, I'm looking into doing it a little bit more now. Um, but I don't, I don't have a lot of information or experience with it yet. No. Okay. I do feel like though that it could be 
beneficial, like, you know, intake some carbs in a race, get that kind of effect and then take some exogenous ketones to fast track yourself back into that. But yep. so I like, there's about a year ago, I went and did a metabolic test, um, test my VO2 max. And then for those who have never done one of those, um, basically what you do is you, you're running on a treadmill and you have this big mask on your face and they start to increase the incline on the treadmill while increasing your speed. Mm-hmm. And you basically just keep going until you have to tap out Yep. But while they're doing that, they're measuring your breath and they're actually measuring, um, what your fat burn ratio is. Mm-hmm. And so everybody, everybody should have a crossover point. The higher intensity they get, eventually they're going to cross over and be burning primarily glucose. Mm-hmm. When I did my test though, I tapped out before I ever saw my crossover point. Interesting. So, wow. So I, um, uh-huh. so basically I decided that I'm too efficient at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so because of that, I've been pushing aside, like trying that kind of stuff just because of how efficient I appear to be at it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Wow. That's, that's a pretty cool fact. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of that. I mean, I haven't looked at that many VO two tests in my life. Maybe there's a subpopulation of people who have that crossover point that, that comes after they tap out. But, um, that's fascinating. I mean, you would yeah. never see that in a cyclist. Like the, the vast majority of cyclists I think are heavily carb dependent and we're shooing them depending on the demands of their event and what they're training for. We're shooing them the other direction to try to get them more flexible to burn more fat effectively is yeah. my general experience. But occasionally you get the riders who are chronically underfueled, and then you have to sort through that mess first and yeah. get them to eat and then train for a little while. And then you can get an accurate measurement. Cause if they go in and they're, they're glycogen depleted for like months on end, just smashing themselves and never refueling and just eating spinach, then <laughs> the numbers don't make that much. Like the numbers are just like, yeah, you're really tired. <laughs> go eat some pasta and go to sleep, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But have you ever yeah. heard of Sean's, Sean Sanko, I think is how you say his last name. No, I don't think so. Sean Sanko, he's from the UK. I just met him a few months ago. Um, I can introduce you if you're interested, but he's a cyclist okay. in the UK. And he's biking something crazy like 500 kilometers a week. Mm-hmm. And he primarily follows a carnivore slash keto diet. Okay, um, interesting. 100% of the time from what yep. I understand. Yep. Um, we talk hmm. quite a bit, but yeah, he, he might be somebody that could give you some information on his approach and some of the benefits he sees from it and some of the potential cons that he sees. Yeah. From it. Yeah. yeah. He's fascinating in the stuff that he's doing in the cycling world. That sounds great. Yeah. That sounds cool. I've followed some of Saladino's stuff and definitely watched a bit of carnivore diet, um, discussion and I find it quite interesting. So for sure. Cool. I'll yeah. send you information. After. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'd appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. One last question. If you got just a couple more minutes. Yeah, of course. Um, you ran a hundred mile race with zero calories. It wasn't a race. It was just my own thing. Oh, okay. Oh no. Okay. Sorry. I guess I did do a race. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Yeah. You've done both. Now. Yeah, I've done both. <laughs> tell us, tell us why you decided to do that and how you pulled it off and what did you eat before and what, what was your experience? Yeah. So I've done it twice now. The first time was in 2020 during COVID, like the height of COVID. Okay. Um, when I first started my low carb, my low carb slash keto approach, I was doing a lot of studying on Jeff Volick. I don't know. Have you heard of him before? Mm-mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Dr. Jeff Volick and Stephen Finney. Um, okay. They have 
they have some good stuff out there on like the benefits of a low carb approach uh, for athletes. Yes. Okay. I have seen a bit of their literature. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I remember Jeff Volick said once that like, you know, every single person in the world, even the thinnest person has enough onboard fat where if they were like put into starvation mode, that they would be able to survive for a few days. They have that much fat, even yep. the thinnest person. And so I always like wondered, like, you know, that's just purely starvation mode. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like the way I have envisioned it is somebody like sitting under a tree, not moving, keeping their heart rate low, just trying to preserve life. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they can last five days. And so I always wondered like how that correlated over to um, physical activity. Like what does that window come down to when you're running, for example, and how long can somebody last running mm-hmm. just relying on their onboard fat? And so with COVID, um, it like canceled all of my races in 2020. Um, there was like no races that year. So I ended up creating just a 100 mile route, which started at my front door, ended at my front door. Um, I, I made a bag of just pure Redmond real salt. And then I had a bag of like raw potassium and a bag of raw magnesium. Hmm. And I just went out, I had my water every hour. I was just like, lick my finger and stick it in the three baggies and then suck off whatever stuck. Mm-hmm. So I was still getting the electrolytes. I was still getting the water, but I wasn't getting any calories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to go out and see if it was possible to run a hundred miles without eating anything. And so I ended up doing that in 18 and a half hours, mm-hmm. which isn't like, it's definitely not any kind of world record, but you know, for me, there was about 6,000 feet of climbing. So it wasn't too flat. Um, and it was like in my top five, um, like for best 100 mile times. Hmm. So it wasn't like a terrible time, but it wasn't the best time. But anyway, it ended up being like a really good experience. I had no issues. Hmm. Um, and so of course I got a lot of flack for it, especially from like sports dietitians and sports nutritionists, like mm-hmm. saying that I have an eating disorder, saying that I'm promoting eating disorders and that nobody should ever talk about me because I'm such a bad example to people with nutrition by starving myself while running a hundred miles. Okay. And I had a lot of people telling me like, well, yeah, you, you might've felt good, but um, who knows what's actually happening internally. And so because of that, critique i decided to do it again this year um i went to a it was a 24-hour race in phoenix mm-hmm. and um i don't know if you have these in cycling world the cycling world but a 24-hour race is you just run as far as you can in 24 yeah. miles yep we something. do a 24-hour mountain bike races and they do them on a circuit and you do as many laps as you can yeah. yep yep yeah so same thing it was a one mile um loop in phoenix and you just did this one mile loop as much as you can in 24 hours mm-hmm so I went there, I didn't eat calories doing this race. Um, this is also why I was wearing the CGM. Yep. I wanted to track my glucose before, during, and after. Um, I had blood work done before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Um, like So I did it with the intent of seeing what's going on internally so I could address the criticism I was getting for it. Yeah. Um, I'm still working with that group to publish the results, but... Like the only thing that came from it that was, I don't want to say concerning, but it was elevated was my cortisol levels. And like, who's to say, like, I I almost need to do blood work before, during, and after a normal race where I'm actually eating yeah, just to see what happens to my cortisol, because who knows if the cortisol levels rose because of the fasting or because I ran for 24 straight hours or a combination of both. Like, you know, but yeah. 
Yeah. So I've done it twice now just to see if it was possible and also just to see what was happening inside my body to answer all the people that was telling me that I was destroying my health. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, there's no way your cortisol levels won't be pretty high after a 24 hour running race, independent of yeah. calories or not. Right. So that's what cortisol does. It responds to stress. Right. So, hmm. Interesting. Well, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And so what did the CGM say? Like what, what were your blood glucose levels like during this event? Um, the highest I ever got was 116. Mm -hmm. I stayed consistently around 78 during the whole race. So basically <laughs> resting levels. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I found very interesting though, and it made sense the more I thought about it, but I also tested my ketones mm -hmm. and, um, my keto, like I envisioned myself like getting into like the threes. Like I, I don't know mm -hmm. how many listeners know much about ketones, but like, you know, once you get above one, you're in a good state of ketosis. Yep. Um, so I thought I was going to be like in the threes, but, um, I never even broke one. I was like consistently around 0.6 to 0.8. That's interesting. So it yeah. threw me off at first, but the more I thought about it, it's like the whole, like when you, when you eliminate glucose, for fuel, mm -hmm. like your body needs to burn something for fuel. And so mm -hmm. naturally it's going to start burning ketones. So I was just burning ketones at a really efficient rate. And it was just keeping it at that point eight because it was taking from my body and using that for my fuel source. Yeah. 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 Huh. Interesting. But yeah, huh. so yeah, it's good experience. No issues at all. Like I definitely noticed like towards the end of both experiences, I didn't have like that extra kick. Like, whereas like, you know, especially like if I had a hill coming up, like if I wanted mm -hmm. to like pick it up a notch, I couldn't do that. Whereas yep. if I had carbs to intake, it would have definitely helped. Um, but aside from just like not having that next gear, like I just had like a nice consistent pace for the majority of it. Mm. Um, that 24 hour race that I did, I actually like, uh, so I ended up doing 118 miles in 24 hours and um, the final like mile, like I, I hit the finish line when there was like seven minutes left. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, should I stop or should right. I try to get one more mile lap in? Right. Well, that final mile, I ended up booking it. I ended up running like a six oh five pace. Nice. And okay. you know, yeah. end of a twenty four hour race without yeah. any calories. I was pretty stoked to be able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good little bookend to it to an effort. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, in my own low carb adventures, I went through a phase where I was racing more on the velodrome. We used to have a velodrome here in Boulder. It's, it's kind of dying now. It's sort of sad, but a velodrome. Yeah, what's that? Um, it's like, it's a 250 meter wooden oval shaped track that's banked. Okay. And you would race a bike on it with no, uh, one gear and no brakes and you can't coast and everyone's yeah. on the same type of gear. So in theory, you don't ever crash into anyone because no one can stop in front of you. Although it doesn't, doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> and so, you know, the races on a velodrome are pretty short and explosive and very glycolytic. I mean, they're anywhere from 12 seconds long to about the longest race is about 15 or 20 minutes at the local track. And so, but they're more like 10 minute, you know, very intense in a group of eight, 10, 12, 15 riders. So you've got a lot of surging and a lot of glycolytic effort and very high intensity efforts and a lot of sprints. And so I was coaching on the track and training on the track. And I kind of went through a phase where I was sort of exploring the boundaries of eating less carbs. And I remember a couple points, one in particular, where I was riding home from the velodrome 
And I just felt so empty, just so empty. And, but I had good energy. I wasn't bonking. I wasn't lightheaded. I wasn't like spacey. I was present, but my body just would not go. And I tried, I kind of wanted to explore a little bit. So I started ramping up the pace on the way home and tried to do a short effort. And I distinctly remember this sensation of battery acid just running through my legs. Like the moment I pushed on the pedals, it was just this intense searing pain, like muscles just fighting against me in a way that was felt as though I had done maybe, maybe how you felt at the end of that, you know, 24 hour race when you were sprinting for the line, I don't know, but like just really intense visceral pain, not visceral, but muscular. And, uh, and it, it just hit me. I was like, yeah, I'm way, way, way in the hole on carbs. I need to up, up, step up the glycogen. <clears throat> that was just my own experience with it. But track is definitely that glycolytic end of the sport of the spectrum. So yeah. Definitely. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, Hey man, um, we've, we were, uh, busting through an hour here and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll, uh, cut you free, but before I do, would you mind uh, sharing with everyone if they want to know more about you, they maybe want to read some of your articles and find out more about your racing adventures. Tell us what the best way for people to go out about and do that is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so yeah, my name is Mike McKnight. Um, you know, if you just Google my name, there should, you should see a few stuff there, but, um, I, like I go by the low carb runner on Instagram. Um, I low carb dash runner dot com is my website that talks a little bit about some of the stuff I've done and some of the stuff I'm going to do. Uh, cool. but yeah, those are the two those main are the sites. Okay, sweet. We'll definitely tag you on the Instagram when we do the, the release and stuff. And I'll put your, your website info in the show notes so people can find that if they want. And I'll definitely search out that info on glycolytic metabolism and how it gets shut down when we don't use sugars for sure. I'll find that. Yeah, um, that'd be great. That the woman, the researcher's name is right on the tip of my brain, but not illuminating. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot, Mike, for joining us. I, I appreciate your time and, uh, and your insight and good luck with your future adventures. Thank you. You too. All right. Thanks. Yeah. See ya. Okay. Bye. Bye. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge understanding and while i think i'm reasonably smart and i know quite a bit of stuff i want to make it clear that the opinions that i share on this podcast are belief systems built on what i've experienced to this point and that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held that is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. 
Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for you listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.